Hello, and welcome to New People, New Ways, a podcast in partnership with Fresh Expressions Florida and Fresh Expressions United Methodist that explores new ways of being church through the stories and insights of scholars and practitioners alike. I'm Piper Ramsey Sumner, a layperson and cultivator of Fresh Expressions for the Florida Conference here uh, in Florida, the UMC. And I'm Michael Adam Beck. I'm the director of Fresh Expressions Florida and Fresh Expressions UM. And today we have Charles Kaiser and Elaine Heath to join us to discuss their new book, Trauma-Informed Evangelism, Cultivating Communities of Wounded Healers, which Piper and I have got to preview and read and like highlighted the whole thing. Like, does it still count <laughs> if you highlight the entire book or is that kind of defeating the purpose? I don't know. Um, but that will be released this April. Uh, so just before this episode kind of comes out. So uh, Charles is a pastor and a theologian with Storyline Christian Community in Dallas, Texas. And Kaiser has a D-Men and contextual theology. Amen. Make some noise for the contextual theologian. <laughs> Northern Seminary. He serves as faculty member of Neighborhood Seminary, uh, another wonderful innovation from Elaine. And he is passionate about creative expressions of Christian community, uh, contemplative spirituality, and healing spiritual trauma. And Elaine is an author, speaker, retreat leader, consultant, and abbess. I love that title. It's just dope. Abbas. Um, <laughs> after growing up in poverty, Elaine earned a PhD in theology, was ordained to the United Methodist Church, served as professor for 11 years at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University, and as dean and professor of missional and pastoral theology at Duke Divinity School at Duke University. And she retired from Duke to lead Neighborhood Seminary, which she co-founded with several friends. She now lives with her uh, spouse at Spring Forest, a new monastic community in rural North Carolina, where along with friends, uh, they tend to forest a small farm, and Spring Forest supports refugee resettlement through sponsorships and an ESL program, and they also donate fresh produce to area food banks, host a range of spiritual formation ministries, children programs, and much more. So thank you, you two, for being with us today, giving us your time. I'm glad to. Yeah, good to be with you. Yeah. The first question that we always ask, which is, can go in so many different directions. And I guess you guys, you both have to answer it individually. So um, we'll start with Charles. Charles, who is Charles Kaiser? Who is Charles Kaiser? I am... Uh, the son of uh, a preacher and the son of of church planters in rural Missouri when I was a kid. I am for better right now, most most of the time for worse. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, watching them in the the playoffs are doing okay so far. Um, I I'm a lover of all things hospitality tables and parties. I love, um, I love, uh, board games. I've been playing, uh, more serious board games for several years now to my great joy. I am, uh, I'm a dad. I've got three kids that range from third grade to 10th grade and I'm a husband. I've been married for 21 years 
And I'm a pet owner. I have a Boston Terrier named Gus. Nice. <laughs> uh, where to begin? <laughs> so I, uh, I, I love all things in nature. I especially love tending our farm and forest. I'm the livestock manager. So I'm not only a shepherd of people through my role as abbess, but I'm also a shepherd of sheep and goats and uh, take care of the chickens and ducks and barn cats and my trusty uh, partner in work, Dill, the border collie. So um, the love of animals and love of creation is really central to my spirituality. I'm also kind of a goofball. I like to joke around and um, make puns and all sorts of things. <laughs> and um, I uh, really enjoy fostering community wherever I am, wherever I go, and really creating spaces where everyone's welcome at the table. Um, yeah, I sometimes people tell me I'm the mother of the Methodist Fresh Expressions movement, which cracks me up because I always have this mental image of you know, in the Nutcracker, that woman that has the big skirt and all the children are under the skirt, and they all come out like it makes me think, yeah. <laughs> makes me think of that image. <laughs> but I've been involved in serial uh, entrepreneurial events, let's say, in fostering new, new types of um, Christian community and also uh, new types of theological education uh, for the sake of God's mission in the world. Yeah, I love that about you, Elaine, the mother of the Methodist Fresh Expressions. And uh, I love to remind people that the first Methodist who ever cultivated a fresh expression was Susanna Wesley, uh, not not John and Charles, but she started one in her kitchen, right? Right. Um, and they grew up in that kind of an innovative, you know, yeah. Ecosystem, but yeah. But um, so tell us what brought you two together to create this book? Oh, Charles, why don't you give it a go? Right on. Uh, I was in um, my doctoral program for contextual theology and was starting to realize that I wanted to do some work um, related to, to trauma and religious trauma specifically. And I had met Elaine years before as a part of the a retreat for uh, a church planning network that I was a part of. And Elaine led our retreat and had us do examine while watching the movie Gran Torino with Clint Eastwood, <laughs> which I thought was amazing. Yeah. Uh, so I'd met her all those years before. And then I just kind of, I just emailed her and said, Hey, this is what I'm up to. And um, is this something you'd be interested in? And uh, she ended up supervising my doctoral work. Uh, and then when um, that thesis was done, it is the the fodder of what was refashioned and turned into this book about trauma-informed evangelism. What would you add to that, Blaine? Anything? Um, yeah, so as we were talking about, because I told him it was one of the best projects I'd ever supervised. Like the writing is really excellent, and his theology, his perspective. Plus, I had seen such growth in him from the beginning to the end of the project in terms of his understanding and the sort of conversation partners that were informing his thought. So I said, this really should get published. So we began to talk about it and we decided, why don't we, why don't we um, publish it together and um, we'll divide the book into three sections. And so Charles will write three chapters and I'll write a response. 
chapter to those three. And so we would divide it up into these three areas, uh, three sections rather. And, and that's how we uh, conceptualize the book. Um, it's coming out from Erdman's. So we feel very pleased with who the publisher is as well. For sure. Yeah, just a moment of transparency here. Charles, I've never heard of you before this project, uh, but I've read everything that Elaine's written, I think, um, unless there's some stuff that stuck by me. But, um, and I was like, I can't wait to read Elaine, you know, because I, I just kind of keep up with everything she does. But then I read your sections, Charles, and I was like, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. The theology you articulated, your writing. I was like, let me get Elaine out of the way so I can get back to Charles here. No, just, yeah, just. <laughs> it was really, really excellent. In fact, I was like, I took a shot at trying to write like a, um, a book on trauma-informed church planting called Painting with Ashes. And mm. I was like, yep, yeah, when this book comes out, Painting Ashes will be buried. No one will ever hear from it again. This will be the, but um, yeah, it, it was really, really incredible. And you, you communicated so many things that um, stirred in my own soul uh, that were just really helpful images theologically, how God takes in suffering and the God self on the cross. And the, there, there just was so much in there. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Um, yeah. yeah the, uh, I, I think it dawned on me as you both said at the beginning, Hey, we've read your book. I don't know if we've, we've had a conversation yet with somebody who's read the whole thing. So I was like, Oh, we, we, we're not starting from ground zero here. We can actually, you know, they have some frame of reference for that. So that that's exciting to me. And thank you for your kind words. It was a real gift to work with Elaine. Um, likewise. Yeah. And thanks for your kind words for my work too, Michael. Appreciate you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this book is entitled Trauma-Informed Evangelism. Can you um, explain a little bit about what it means to be trauma-informed? especially in terms of this spiritual spaces. You want me to go first, Elaine, or do you want to? Uh, why don't I take a stab at it, and then you can pick up whatever I haven't said. Okay. Great. Um, well, to be trauma-informed, uh, first of all, I think means doing your own homework on your own life, that you're, you're healing from your own wounds. I think of Henry Nowlin, who in his classic The Wounded Healer, makes the statement that if we're not attending to our, I'm not using my own language, if we're not attending to our own unfinished business, if we're not healing from our wounds, we will become wounded wounders. And most of the time we won't know we're wounding people, we'll be unself-aware. So the first piece is working on our own unfinished business, and, and that's a lifelong process. And then second, becoming aware of how trauma affects people in general you know, the work of Bessel van der Kolk, for example, how does trauma affect people in general? But then um, to become further informed about how religious trauma or spiritual trauma affects people, um, because that has a dramatic effect on people's ability to, uh, to experience healthy, uh, spiritual, a healthy spiritual life and um, uh, to heal in some other ways. So maybe I'll, I'll stop at that point. Charles, why don't you jump in? Right on. Um, you know, I think so much of our, our theological imagination for ourselves and humanity um, in Christianity, um, especially in the Western tradition, uh, um, relates to um, sin and brokenness. 
and uh, um, those are those are important and historic categories. I think uh, a trauma-informed perspective pays attention also to the ways that we're wounded and injured, and to the way that that uh, that sin is released as a uh, kind of a response or an outgrowth sometimes even of traumatization and woundedness and and being injured and so to be trauma informed is to it's to see our own woundedness and injury it's to see the woundedness and injury that's present in the in our neighbors in the folks that are in our in our churches it's to see that as a context and like Elaine was saying it's to see too the one of the things about trauma that was just so illuminating to me is the way that uh, we carry it in our minds and our bodies and our brains, and you can't just get over it. You, uh, it, uh, you're not, you're not um, being resistant or obstinate or stubborn to uh, to to di- have difficulty, um, especially in spiritual environments. If you've had religious harm and trauma in your past. Uh, these are things that that lodge and embed in our minds and our brains and our bodies. And they don't go away unless we pay particular attention to them and seek to heal them. So that frame, being trauma-informed is seeing that, seeing the context of our woundedness and injury and the way that, that that's at play in our in our lives and in our religious experience as well. I think I'd like to add one more thing to that, too. And that, that was really good, Charles. I'm just thinking about um, being trauma-informed in ministry also means knowing about and taking responsibility for the ways the church has inflicted spiritual trauma on people and has contributed to other kinds of trauma, for example, domestic violence and uh, all the trauma of uh, misogyny and uh, racism and you know, other isms and phobias and uh, sort of classes of people that have been so damaged by bad theology. So um, because trauma is not only for for individuals, we not only experience it, but it's also a collective, you know, and um, Andrew Sung Park has written about this in several of his books about the, about Han, the Korean concept of the, the residue of being sinned against, the residue of being harmed. So all of that, all of that falls into this general uh, area of trauma-informed ministry. Yeah, and, and Charles, I appreciated the um, original research that you did and where you were able to kind of pull um, some of the stories of some of the trauma and harm that the church has caused to people um, and just kind of the sad, you know, juxtaposition of um, what what Jesus intended to be a community of healing for all people has actually uh, in the 21st century, a lot of people associate it with actually uh, not a healing place, but a harmful place. Um, And, you know, that's a sad realization to make, but until we can like face that um, and, and, and kind of, you know, know that that trauma has to be dealt with in order to be able to, uh, create a, a meaningful spiritual community. I thought that was a really helpful part of the book. Um, and I actually really just appreciate the way both of you are scholar practitioners and maybe uh, just adjunct pra- uh, uh, adjunct professor here with like practical theology as my focus. And, you know, uh, 
you know, get out of the way and let the big, the scholars who've been studying, you know, the Bible or whatever, get, so you practically theologian, you know, go over there in your, your little part of the lunchroom or whatever. Um, but, but hey, by the way, guess who's actually out in the world doing ministry and learning and, 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 you know, trying to actually be a practitioner of, of the things that we're studying. So I appreciate that about both of you. And this question's around, um, in what ways have you seen in awareness how trauma functions and knowing that, how, how does that kind of shift or make a difference in the way you do ministry? Well, for me, um, uh, I approach ministry as a spiritual director. I, I basically take the posture of a spiritual director with people. And I assume Christ is already with the other person. I, I assume God is with them. God's been at work in their lives, regardless of how aware they might be. And I feel like my companioning role is one of genuine friendship and helping people in a very natural, organic way to notice how God is with them and loves them and is always for them. It's always for them. Um, so there's a, it's, it's relational. It's not hurried. It takes all the time in the world. It deeply respects the story of the other person as a sacred story. And, um, you know, try to build trust over time, never try to force people to do or say or go anywhere, you know, that they're just not ready to do or say or go. There's a person in our community here who's, who has really serious trauma in her, in her past, especially during her adolescence and her early 20s. And she has come to find a place of deep peace here and genuine faith and is a beloved member of our community. Um, but it's just been a very gradual process of companionship, trusting her, um, doing life together, and uh, also being aware of her trigger points, knowing what that means, being aware of recovery issues, being aware of uh, eating disorder issues, you know, like I I had to bring that knowledge with me to be able to have the relationship that I have and to have it be peaceful and uh, non-anxious and, and that kind of thing. Hmm. Hmm. Um, you know, for me, the, the, this trauma lens kind of, you know, came and found me in the course of um, ministry and mission. I was part of a, a fresh expression, if you will, missional community for several years that um, was a part of a, a board gaming group at our local bar. And that was, that was spiritual community and neighborhood for us. And um, after several years of being in that group, um, uh, started listening more deeply as a, as a part of this doctoral program. It gave me some excuses to ask some deeper questions and, um, uh, uh, what what kind of was be right below the surface? It seemed, uh, I, you know, I, w I wasn't even asking questions about harm or religious trauma. Uh, I was I was curious about what was making this community, this board gaming community, tick. And I had one question about transcendence or spirituality. Is there anything about this uh, community that's transcendent or spiritual to you? Uh, knowing that most of my friends are. Uh, atheist, agnostic, not religious. They're secular folks, uh, and they predictably said, "Oh well, I, I don't really have categories 
for that. I don't, I don't know how to answer that question, but can I tell you how I've been hurt and how I've been harmed in the context of church or religion? And I mean, almost to a person that we interviewed and uh, I couldn't turn away, you know, it just got my attention uh, that oh, there's something, there's something to learn here. And, and what it showed me, the, these lenses for trauma was that I had, I'd been seeing this for years and years and years. I just didn't have words to describe what I was experiencing. Uh, when people would stiffen up, when I told them I was, I was a pastor or abruptly stop the conversation and just leave, uh, or yell at me, you know, like, uh, so just my very presence for some folks, uh, in, in the frame house of trauma was, a uh, it activated religious trauma, um, for them. So the impact of this lens for me is it, it opened all kinds of space for me to have compassion for my friends and my neighbors who've had these terrible experiences to, to see it in the context of harm that they had experienced in the past. And, uh, rather than, you know, taking it personally or wiping the dust off of my feet, uh, leaning in and, 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 uh, like Elaine was saying very patiently, um, just saying, I'm going to, I'm going to be here because you, you may not have had Christian folk who weathered, uh, or who, who persisted in being here in ways that weren't harmful to you. Uh, so it just, uh, it, it turned my kind of the ways that I, see my relationships with my neighbors upside down. It gave me lenses that I didn't previously, uh, previously have. It, it helped me to see something that was, that, uh, God was at work to heal, uh, as a part of our spiritual journeys together. Thank you. I, I want to, um, have you all unpack empathetic witness a little bit here. <clears throat> And um, interestingly, uh, Charles, you know, you, you mentioned compassion and um, your, your research is helping me uh, do some, some um, deeper dive research in compassion right now. And I've been studying kind of the architecture of Jesus' compassion, um, for instance, in Matthew 9, where he sees the crowds harassed and helpless with like sheep without shepherds. So that's a kind of an indictment of the shepherds of that day, right? But then he's splachnitimai, uh, he's moved to the bowels with compassion and uh, studying how uh, really compassion's connected uh, to like the vagus nerve system, which runs from the you know bottom of the brain to uh, regulates breathing, heart rate, gut, uh, digestive, um, and people who spend time in prayer, contemplation, uh, actually strengthen that. But literally physiologically human beings are wired for compassion uh it's in the deepest part of the brain the core part uh, what some would call the reptilian brain where the compassion response is in there with fight or flight or freeze response um and so when jesus is he's seeing he's sensing the pain in people he's suffering with so he's having this emotive kind of uh experience and then he's reacting to that and he's healing and blessing and and, and responding physically um, but then in the layers of the brain, you get into the neocortex where it's higher level thinking, where toxic theology resides. Um, and the compassion response literally that God created us to have and to be stirred to the bowels with love, like we're really formed for that, gets stuck with, um, well, 
we can show compassion for this type of person or that type of person, but our theology actually limits our ability uh, to to respond to that. And you all did a great job kind of diagnosing really toxic theology and, and suggesting some really beautiful theology as a way forward as a trauma-informed uh, theology. So tell us, what is um, empathetic witness? I, I could give a personal example from my own story because I grew up with lots of trauma. Um, empathetic witness, that uh, empath, somebody who's an empath or empathic, feels as much as possible the pain of others. And I would think, based on the neuro neurological things that you just described, Michael, uh, that pathway is wide open for an empath, right? They're, they're really, they are suffering with and feeling the pain. So um, Gabor Mate, uh, this is one of the ways that he defines um, trauma. It's not what happens to us. It's what we carry or what we hold in the absence of an empathetic witness. So um, I come from a family of five kids. And um, as studies have shown, you know, kids growing up in the same family with the same kinds of trauma, some of the kids are resilient and others are not. And what uh, studies have shown makes a difference is what Mate would call an empathetic witness. So um, that would be an adult or a child that's older enough to be like an adult to the little one who sees them, who actually sees them and re respects them and treats them with appropriate love and honor um, has room for them in their life. When a kid is being traumatized for whatever, uh, whatever the factors are, if there's at least one person in their life that's, that's an empathetic witness who sees, who loves, who is appropriate and healthy with them, um, that can change that child's trajectory toward resilience, even if it's only for six months out of that child's whole growing up years. Just even six months can make the difference so in my case, um, there were a couple people like that. My third grade teacher, Mrs. Lyons, was an empathetic witness. Um, I've written the story of how she called me to stay after class one day, and we lived in significant poverty, and there was a, abuse and neglect and all kinds of things going on in my family. And I was really scared when she told, asked me to stay in during recess. I thought I was going to get in trouble. And she was the one adult in my life that I felt safe with. So I felt like doom was around the corner, you know, that she was upset with me. I went up to her desk and she pulls out this tube of Avon skin cream and un she undoes the lid and she takes my little forearm and in her hand and she says, I noticed you have dry skin and I thought you might like to have this. And she just put a little bit on my forearm. Um, and, and rubbed this, and it smelled wonderful. It made me smell like her, which was like the best thing ever. And so I, I was just like slack-jawed with wonder. You know, <laughs> She puts the lid back on, and, and she says, you can, you can go outside now, <laughs> kind of you know, moves me toward the door. She said, you can have this, and, and told me to go put it in my desk. So that Mrs. Lyons was an empathetic witness to my suffering. I, I knew she loved me, and she saw me, and she respected me. And that was enough to give me a whole lot of strength for other things that I had to endure. Wow. Mm. Got me teary-eyed. That's so beautiful. And how mm -hmm. simple, you know, just such a simple act. And that empathy doesn't have to be complicated. Mm -hmm. She saw you and saw what you needed and yeah. did what she yeah. could, you know. Mm. It's beautiful. 
that's one of the things I'm most grateful to Elaine for is um, helping me to see. She put me onto that mate um, I, frame for trauma about uh, empathetic witness, and it it helped me to reimagine um, the story of Jesus um, in those terms. Uh, you know, it, essentially the. Uh, the good news, especially uh, in Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, uh, one way of seeing that is that Jesus experiences spiritual abuse and religious trauma. He he suffers every kind of abuse in the cross that's uh, imaginable. Um, he is a, a religious trauma survivor by virtue of his resurrection. And to the extent that Jesus is the fullness of God, God also is uh, experiencing and surviving um, religious trauma. And so one way of understanding the cross, I think, is particularly helpful as we um, as we think about being trauma-informed in our ministry and evangelism is that, that Jesus, in his crucifixion and resurrection, is an empathetic witness to our pain and to the pain of our neighbors. And just by virtue of Jesus coming into solidarity with the sufferings of those who suffer, and 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 seeing that, and uh, bearing witness to that, there there's something that happens that is healing through the cross and resurrection, just on on that level. And so, what if what if part of the work of the church is joining Jesus in that way as empathetic witnesses to the pain of our neighbors? That's the way that we walk in the world because it's the it's the way we walk in the steps of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that makes the work that of doing doing this work with people who have been traumatized in the name of Jesus. I feel like it makes it so incredibly complicated and so many more layers to it. Um, you were talking about just using certain language and how that triggers people. Certain Sometimes it's not even certain songs, but certain yeah. styles of music or where that music is set up. Sometimes it's the way people dress or present themselves or just how they identify. Hi, I'm a pastor's kid. Immediately, people mm-hmm. are like, hmm. You know, um, oh, I went to school for theology. Oh, okay, I need to change the way that I talk to you. Mm -hmm. Those things, it triggers people. And it's something that I think, I guess, yeah. So what have you guys seen in your experience? How do you kind of navigate that? And what does it it look like? I think I love, Elaine, you talked about your ministry, one of the elements being not hurried, and that you kind of walk alongside. And sometimes the word, talk about triggering words, evangelism can be a tough one. And there's always, especially I grew up conservative evangelical. And so evangelism has this underlying sense of like this incredible urgency. There was somebody that went to our church for a while who was um, a street evangelist. And he handed out these million dollar, these fake million dollar bills that had around the edge, the million dollar question, what would, where are you going to go if you died tonight? You know, that kind of, it was all kind of fear based. And so evangelism has this weight to it, even, even for Christians. And so do you think it is possible to build a Christ centered spiritual community with those who have experienced spiritual, spiritual abuse in the name of Jesus? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I hope so. 
<laughs> if not, we're screwed, right? Yeah, we're really bad news. What does it what does it look like or what hasn't looked like for you? How does that come about? What's the process? <laughs> yeah, you want to talk first? Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> one of my one of my favorite frames for like uh, trauma informed ministry and evangelism, which just as an aside, um, I hate the word evangelism about every other day. Um, so like because it carries so much bad baggage, um, part of what we want to do in this in this book is ma- make a case for a kind of evangelism that is about embodied witness and and becoming the gospel and um, and uh, leading by fascination rather than by force that we 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 live with such winsome lives um and the uh the good news of the kingdom of god is at work among us that there's something um there's it's life-giving it's life-giving to us and to our neighbors um it's not a sales job it's not a um it's not a cold turkey presentation it's it, it is untethered from the outcomes of conversion and proselytization, you can do evangelism without uh, those kind of results and do evangelism well, if evangelism is embodying the good news in your shared life with your your spiritual community. Um, so one of the, sorry, I got distracted by the E word there. Um, <laughs> one, one of the frames that I really like comes from a trauma expert. Uh, her name is Judith Herman. And she wrote a book in the, the mid nineties called trauma and recovery. And she's a therapist. Um, she has these three kind of stages of recovery that have been really impactful to me and how I see myself and how our spiritual community kind of relates to our neighbors who carry trauma. Um, the first stage is, is safety. Um, this is the unhurried thing. Uh, you can't short shortcut building safety in your relationships with your neighbors. Uh, it could take a year or five years or 10 years. It's basically a commitment just to, to be there, to be present with our neighbors and to go at the pace that they want to go at in conversation, in relationship. Um, it's being non-anxious, uh, non-reactive in that relationship. Um, and it, it just takes as long as it takes. Uh, and that is, that's a different posture than I'm in this relationship to do something or to accomplish something. Um, the second stage is about telling the story. It, uh, if you get to this stage, if you're graced, if you're gifted to get to witness the sacred space of somebody telling the story of what happened to them, telling the story of the harm, and even helping them tell that story because trauma fragments our memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's hard to retell that story. Uh, but th- this is the empathetic witness kind of phase where where we're, the, the church enters as empathetic witness to, to observe, to come alongside of our neighbors as they tell those stories so that um, they can be lamented and grieved, um, so that they can be named for the wrong that they were to say, yeah, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That should never happen. That was wrong. Uh, and I stand with you against that. You're not crazy, uh, or weird for thinking that that shouldn't have happened. That wasn't your fault. Um, in that space of 
of storytelling, that lament and grief is a big part of what helps to bring healing. Um, and then the third stage Herman talks about is just like reconnecting that, that, that space of storytelling and grief and lament opens space for, um, for helping others in the same way or for reconnecting in relationships for, for rebuilding the theological and philosophical pieces of your lives. You know, it's, um, often the spiritual conversations that I have with folks about God or the Bible or whatever, they don't come until that third stage because they're, it's, it's not appropriate until it, or it's not even, it's not even helpful until, um, the story has been told and there's been some healing that has taken place. So that, I share that frame. It's, it's been, um, super helpful to me for thinking about it. Mm-hmm. When I uh, was at Perkins School of Theology, I taught the intro to evangelism class all those years. So uh, every United Methodist student going through the school that was going to be ordained took the class. So I, I had this wonderful opportunity to impact imaginations. And I used to have, uh, I used to give a lecture about Julian of Norwich, uh, the, the mystic. And mm-hmm. I would talk about her servant parable. parable and uh, sort of unpack the proto-universalism of her theology, you know, her vision. And then I'd give people an exercise in a small group to discuss what, what would evangelism be like if we didn't believe there was going to be a hell, a fiery hell? What if we believed that God is going to just, love's going to win out in the end, and uh, God has some wonderful way to make that happen? How would that change how we think of evangelism and how we practice it? <clears throat> And always, uh, it kind of stumped people for a while. <clears throat> Excuse me, they were, uh, some would be offended at these questions, you know, because they really needed to have a fiery hell. But um, there'd be this sort of stunned silence. And then all of a sudden, people would realize, oh, this could be wonderful. We could take time. We could, <laughs> you know, this sort of, oh, it's about the good news. It's about, you know, of course, some people think if you don't have a threat of hell, there's nothing there's there's no there's nothing to do to evangelize it's useless uh there's just sort of this blah everything goes uh completely missing the point right <laughs> but yeah that's that's one of the ways i approach teaching evangelism i love that so much i think um <laughs> yes I agree. I think evangelism, when you take out that that wild kind of urgency, like, oh, we got to save souls when it becomes more about the here and now and what can the gospel do in your life now, um, it's a completely different ballgame. And something I uh, about in the Fresh Expressions kind of realm, we have the Fresh Expressions journey, which is this process where a community evolves and grows and becomes um, a church in itself. And the very first step is listening. And that step never ends. And it's this continual, constant thing. And I think that's where a lot of the times that evangelism and mission and things like that fall apart almost instantly is when that listening piece is lost and it's not there. Um, And you also can't just expect people to just tell you everything, even if you are having a wonderful posture of listening. It also, that even more important uh, thing is relationship, which is with, um, you guys both talked about um, being a constant, being patient and walking alongside, 
the empathetic witness. Um, and another term that I really like that we use with fresh expressions is mm-hmm. belonging before believing that the community is inviting all who are willing to participate and who will be kind to the others that are there and aren't going to, you know, cause a ruckus or anything. Well, it depends on what kind of ruckus. There could be some fun ruckus, ruckuses out there. But, um, and that's what I try to do with um, when I do fresh expressions. I've got a group in also in a bar, Charles. Um, we do, we pop around to different breweries here in Tallahassee. Um, and like 90% of the people that join have spiritual trauma. A lot of them, well, I mean, we're in the Bible Belt. So a lot of them grew up conservative, evangelical, and they're done with church, but they're not done with having these kinds of conversations because we meet and pick a different topic related to religion and philosophy and culture. And they still desire to have those conversations, but in a space where they feel like they can actually dive in. And so it's, it's a, I've been at this for years and I'm still learning new things and they're still learning new things. Um, and I guess, I don't know. I don't really have a question. That was just kind of my thoughts about it. But um, I guess I could ask maybe, what does it look like? How has the process of listening and of doing this kind of as a slowly process? Have you seen a lot of, what does it look like to the transformation in the people's lives that you have worked with? Oh, there's one person I'm thinking of who um, began to volunteer on our farm. Uh, she's, she's, this, is a, this is an octogenarian, right? who left church when she was maybe 19 because she couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> all of the sin and hell, damnation and all that kind of talk, she just couldn't take it anymore and um, uh, was in the Peace Corps. And, you know, it's a really good person, but really wanted nothing to do with religion or religious people. But she got involved volunteering on our farm because we have a, a regenerative farm and she really cares about um, caring for the earth. And she, a neighbor who, who is a believer, who's a part of what we're doing, invited her to come. And uh, over many, many months, it's been, I think, over a year, um, I just talk to her sometimes while we're packing CSA boxes or while we're picking weeds or whatever. We're, we're all just talking. And our farm team is extremely irreverent. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, uh, it was the belonging. Like she belonged with us. And probably two months ago, she began to express curiosity about the vision for Spring Forest. And then um, a friend gave her my memoir, um, Loving the Hell Out of Ourselves, which is about growing up in this violent family. And it, that really opened her heart up to, she, she came and said, I never imagined that God could be helpful to someone who's being violated in these ways. Like, I, you know, God saved your life. And I never imagined that could happen. And so now, I mean, we're regularly having these just really wonderful conversations and um, she's becoming more involved in other things. And uh, so that's, so it's, you know, uh, just keep walking alongside, right? (laughs) Yeah. And and one of the things I love that y'all did in the book um, is, you know, people hear the evangelism word and they're like, evangelism, that's illegal, right? We're, we're not allowed to do that anymore. That's, um, and, and you, you redeemed it in the sense of, um, evangelism is not about passing out the tracks and if you died today, but it's biblically, it's about shalom. It's about healing. It's about holism. Yeah. Um, it's about being reintegrated into community and restored in relationships and, 
really has nothing to do biblically, very little to do at least with some post-mortem escape hatch destiny kind of situation, which is what we made it all about. So you did that in the book, redeemed it. Uh, and then you did a really good job redeeming the cross, which is another thing people are like, oh, don't tell me about the blood of Jesus or the cross. Uh, because uh, again, we've imported really foreign ideas around it from the biblical that aren't in the biblical text about, you know, divine child abuse and all those things that you kind of took apart and reconstructed. One of my favorite images uh, that I'd never heard before, I know you were borrowing from somebody else, but was the stillbirth concept of how like the mother God could, could carry death in herself, but not die. And, and the kind of the unbroken fellowship of the Trinity that's happening in the cross, which was really, really beautiful. Um, and I think what we're doing in Fresh Expressions, I like to talk about creating communities that are safe, accessible, and real, drawing from all that trauma um, uh, research and work, where the first thing is create a safe environment where people can know that they're beloved and they can deconstruct those harmful images of God and of themselves. Uh, and those things have to be accessible where they take place in the normal rhythms and spaces of life, bars. You know, for me, that's tattoo parlors and dog parks and burrito joints and uh, VR space and pretty much anywhere human beings can get together. And then real where people can really kind of articulate their pain in an unfiltered way. And, and they can they can have a safe community where wounds can become scars and they can, you know, be able to say this. This is what happened in my life. And it's, that's where that empathetic witness that the healing comes from that. Um, so I was wondering what kind of what we do in most of our fresh expressions is we will maybe when it gets to this point in the gathering, we'll share a Jesus story. Um, and there's no preacher, there's no professional monologue, you know, get up now, let me tell you what the Bible means. It's a simple, quick telling from a lay person, five minutes of, of a Jesus story, and then some questions. So like, if the Jesus story happened today, that's a question that we love. What would it look like? And then everybody weighs in on it. So you don't have to be a Christian. You don't have to have any theology at all to be able to say, I think it would look like this. And then we can go deeper when, when the community is ready for it and say, you know, if this story is true, what kind of difference would it make in your life or how would it change your God images or your self images? And then people talk about that. So it's, it's really creating a community where uh, that, that shared um, experience gets built around doing something. So like from, from Kolk's research about your body you know, keeps the score, putting people's bodies in rooms together and doing things like tattooing or eating burritos or whatever. So you're embodying, you're embodying your whole person as community. You're doing something together. And that kind of brings this other level of healing. Whereas you might not get that sitting in a pew, coming in, listening to somebody telling you about, you know, the Bible. Um, and I think these things actually look like more, more authentically what we read about in the church in the Bible, in the early church history, and those things. So, what are some of? The, tell us what some of your gatherings look like. Um, how how that you know maybe at, at a board game church or out on the farm. What do those kind of spiritual conversations look like as you're helping people deepen uh, spiritually over time? Uh, one thing that I hear you saying that I, and I I think as a. I, I at one point read the Methodist 
field the field guide for fresh expressions. Yeah. And I think read about the burrito, the burrito church, burrito. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's the one. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, this this guy is a brother. The, the, he, uh, we're like kindred spirits here. You know, his burrito yeah. joint is my board gaming, you know, space. Yeah. Uh, and I, one thing that I think is so important that's that's underneath that and so important for the future of the church in the backdrop of this, uh, in front of the backdrop of this uh, credibility crisis and all, and all of the <laughs> spiritual and religious harm that's occurred is that the the church has to learn to be a guest again? Um, you know, a lot of a lot of our imagination and evangelism um, has to do with hosting, and there is a place for hosting, but um, we have to notice the power differences in in being the host and being the guest. And sometimes the safest thing that we can do, the most trauma informed thing we can do, is to is to be the ones to take it for the team as it were and to enter as the guest with all the vulnerability with the the bottom side of the power difference there to enter on on someone else's parameters and to ask to ask for permission to ask for for openness and for goodwill ourselves um to be the to be the new person in a new space i think that those postures are so important um for 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 fresh expressions but especially in a context of religious trauma where um uh folks have have been harmed enough that they're not interested to be hosted by the church any longer they think you know that they, they know what happened the last time that they um they did that you know the other thing that comes to mind about like what gatherings look like is um part of what the I love what you said about embodiment. I'm getting distracted by that too. I mean, maybe we can talk about that too. Um, but I, I think uh, uh, permission and consent and opting out is like really important for folks who have a lot of religious triggers, like to have a space where nobody is going to take it personally. If you need to excuse yourself to, or if we need to stop and take some deep breaths and kind of recenter, um, or, or uh, if we're going to do something spiritual together, I want you to know enough about exactly what's about to happen that you can decide if that's something that you want to do or not. Um, just some of those clues and um, permission seeking, consent seeking is part for me of what it means in our in our gatherings together, what it means to be trauma informed, um, to pay respect to folks who carry that carry that wound with them. For us, it's, uh, it's a lot of it's around the farm or in the forest. We have different things that we do. We have a community-supported agriculture project, and there are volunteers who like to work on the farm to take care of the crops and you know help with packing the CSA and delivering it. And um, the conversations and the the fact that we're tending living things, um, it's just a really organic space literally with the plants and with um, how the conversations evolve. Um, many times people bring up spiritual subjects, spiritual questions, and I'm surprised at how, like how vulnerable and quickly people just want to talk about these things that you, you might think they wouldn't want to because they do have religious trauma in their background. But um, so just working together on the farm is a major way this happens. 
We also have a monthly social gathering at the farm. We have game nights. We have campfires. We're going to have a sing-along. We've had drum circles. And they're just fun times for people to spend time together, get to know each other, eat together, do something active together. And um, it doesn't have a religious focus, um, but spiritual connection happens there very easily. Then we have a monthly dinner church format called Forest Feast, where people come and um, it's often outdoors. If the weather permits, even in cold weather, we will have it outdoors sometimes around a big campfire. And um, it's kind of like what you were saying, Michael. We don't have like a professional monologue from a clergy person. It's more um, different lay people will share the leadership. Um, they design what we're going to do. Sometimes it's very funky and eclectic, and that's okay with us. I remember we had an herbalist who's spiritual but not religious who led it one time, and we all went out and smelled the herbs and touched them. And, you know, it was just different. And I thought, this is this very funky. But we had some young adults that came to visit that day. They just randomly showed up, and that, that meant so much to them. They just And they were spiritual but not religious people. So, you know, touching those plants really meant a lot to them. So uh, that's kind of that's kind of how how we roll here. What kind of, what kind of herbs were y'all? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, <laughs> you'll have like, that's to come a and visit. Yeah, I was going to say, now I got to come up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, I love both of what you guys were saying. I think Elaine, like talking about embodiment, like like you said, it's just naturally happening. You're, the yeah. nature of what you're up to is embodied. You're touching, feeling, smelling. And that in itself, like I think about, um, I forget the the trauma work where the um, you go the back and forth mm-hmm. with the, both sides of your brain that works really well for trauma. I forget what that kind of therapy is called. But that was discovered on a nature walk. Um, and so these connects, connections with nature can bring about this kind of healing and they just be being in nature, no matter what religion that you are or lack of religion, it creates this, it creates the environment for yeah. spiritual connection or something beyond yourself. Yeah. You can just sense it when you're in those spaces. Um, and I also love Charles, what you were talking about with the, the church learning to be a guest again, I'm writing an essay for a book right now. And that's kind of like my premise is that the church there's a lot of spaces where that have been created by people who have been kicked out of the church, whether literally or metaphorically. And if the church wants the, those people back or wants to create, create space for them, what really should be happening is the church needs to be asking forgiveness and asking permission to share some of that, that space that those people have gone and created for themselves. And so yes. it's a complete flip. The power, like you said, it's flipped upside down, which I think, to me, I think there's no other way forward for the church. Personally, I think that's what's got to happen. Our power and our sense, these hierarchies that we have created, which just is just so counterintuitive to everything I think that Jesus was up to. He was constantly flipping things, literally flipping tables, flipping the definitions of these ideas that were um, that have been so long kind of ingrained in us. And then Christianity has over the last, you know, 2000 years really solidified these hierarchical kind of things. But there's also always been a strain of those who have rebelled against that. Um, 
And that that was actually that those strain of rebels yeah. of people like um, the Catholic worker movement and stuff like that that kept that's what saved me as a a person who went through my own kind of spiritual fallout and disillusionment with the church and all the trauma and things that came along with that. Um, I never I never fully gave up on Christianity and on God because of those folks who were rebellious who were trying to get at the heart of what. I think Christianity is all about and what it is for me. Um, and that kind of goes with the next question to bring it back to you two. What do you think the future of the church looks like? We ask this every time. So you guys have a little pressure. Gonna, we're going to weigh you against it. No, I'm just kidding. You, whatever, whatever your answer is going to be great. <laughs> I would love to hear it. Well, Charles is not, is not Methodist, so it'll be good to hear Charles' perspective from his tradition and then more broadly. As a Methodist, I feel like what's happening is this very fertile environment where inherited forms of church are collapsing. They won't go away completely. They'll be pruned, so to speak, or kind of what um, Phyllis Tickle would say, you know, chastened. And then these uh, fresh expressions are coming up, and there, there are a lot of experiments going on. Many of them won't last very long, but they're all really important. And I, I believe that the future of the church, coming from a Wesleyan perspective at least, is going to be multifaceted with different um, expressions of church. And um, we'll become more comfortable with having church in non-church environments. We'll become more aware and practicing church as forming community first and foremost, rather than thinking it's first and foremost a worship service or a religious building. Um, we're going to see a lot more lay leadership, and it's incumbent upon us to properly equip the lay leaders, that are, not, not through some inherited lay leader program, but really creating new forms of theological education to equip people for this kind of ecclesiology and practice uh, those are some of the things that I see in our future. Yeah. I'm not sure I could do better than <laughs> Dr. Elaine Heath on that question. Uh, uh, I don't envy you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, as she's talking, I'm thinking about her, a, a great line of hers from one of her talks and in, um, in the book about how she says, um, uh, that we're at the forefront of a uh, of a new reformation, and that this this reformation that we're on the forefront of is um, a reformation in which the church reckons with its complicity in in harm in in racism and sexism and in homophobia and um, religious trauma, and in in that reckoning learns how to be a force uh, of healing in the world, and that the way forward is a, a healing form of church, um, a, a communities of healing, communities of wounded healers. Um, and and I, I say that with faith and hope that that, that, that could be so. Um, I do think there will be lots of, lots of pruning. There will be, there will be death in that, um, uh, but I'm hopeful for for these these healing 
and uh, nurturing manifestations to crop up too. As a non-Methodist, I'm also hopeful and and starting to even participate in um, like um, more uh, ecumenical and across denomination and traditions. Uh, we, We don't have the luxury to be on different teams anymore. Uh, we're, we're in this together and, and our theological diversity is an asset and not a liability. Our, our diversity in any expression is, is an asset and not a liability. And, um, to, to be able to link together with, with churches in my neighborhood and in my city, uh, across the spectrum and, and to imagine ourselves together as the church in this city or in this county, I think there's more of that kind of thinking ahead of us too. And that feels really right and good. That feels healing. Yeah. I, I, I really believe the work of evangelism as we move forward is to heal the wounds that were inflicted by Christendom. Mm. That's really what evangelism is going to look like if it's going to be fruitful. Yeah. Mm. That is a good place to um, start to to wind down the conversation. Um, Charles, if you wanted to jump in, you said you were having a, a, a inspiration around embodiment. Um, you may want to bring that in if if you if you if it's on the fore of your mind there. Um, I, I then, think you all said it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. Okay. Cool. Just want to make sure we covered that. So tell us um, for one, where can people? Where can our listeners connect with you? Uh, what what kind of what tell us about book release details where people can find it uh, where where they can follow you in your work both of you uh, you can find me at elaineaheath.org i have a personal website there it has um, information about work that i do it has a contact information you can subscribe to my website um, there's a page with all my publications, including our new book that's coming out soon on trauma, trauma-informed evangelism. You can also look at um, springforest.org to see what's happening here at Spring Forest and neighborhoodseminary.org to see what's happening there. Uh, right on. Similarly, um, you can find, best place to find me is at charleskaiser, K-I-S-E-R.com, and that links to other social media and stuff. Um, and, uh, my community's, uh, website is storylinecommunity.com. Um, you can see more about the, the church and the, the nature of our work, um, in our context. And as far as the book is concerned, I think you can buy it most any place you like to buy your books. Um, a- Amazon or Barnes and Noble or, BAM or whatever, whatever your your um, preferred book provider is. And um, yeah. Thank you. Awesome. And Amazon says um, April 11th. Does that sound right? Yep, that's yeah. right. <laughs> April 11th and you can pre-order it. I might be able to give you hours and minutes, you know, if you need that. (laughs) We'll follow you on Twitter and you can do a a countdown. countdown Live tweet it. That's great. Cool. Well, thank you again. Uh, This was such a great conversation. Thanks for joining us. My my pleasure. Thank Thank you so much. And to those listening, 
Thank you for joining in on this episode of New People, New Ways. If you enjoyed this conversation with Elaine and Charles, please rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening through. And if you'd like to learn more about what Michael and I are up to and Fresh Expressions, you can go to freshexpressionsfl.org and find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on New People, New Ways. <laughs>